Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1. Then it came about in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the town of Bethel had sent Shar-Ezer and Regemelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belonged to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain, as I have done these many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? And when you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves, and do you not drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with its cities around it, and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. And they made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. And it came about that just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. Thus the land is desolated behind them so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land desolate. Amen. Here, this oracle now begins a series of oracles that are apart from the visions. And actually, this was beginning at the end of the last chapter. In this section, or this chapter, chapter 7, the prophet deals with a common problem or a common sin among the people. Both the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament, and even pastors today, have to deal with this fundamental misunderstanding among men. That is, in the first part of the chapter, they come to the prophet prophets and the priests, to ask a question about fasting, and this is symbolic or representative of the fact that people do external deeds of religion, however, they mistreat each other, which is what he confronts them on in verses 8 to 14. Whenever the people think that religious duty religious actions, religious practices, religious traditions, rituals, ceremonies, whatever, something external is sufficient and fine before God, they have misunderstood the central message of Scripture. And that central message is that they should love God and love one another. And the proof that they love God is that they love one another and love one another the way the Bible describes the way that love should be carried out. And that is 
what Zechariah has to address here. They come with this question about fasting, and he preaches the Ten Commandments, or at least the second table of the law, the last six commandments where he addresses in those um, verses, verses 8 to 14, the commandments uh, of loving or, or honoring father and mother all the way to you shall not covet. And this is the common thread of Scripture. People misunderstand what God expects of them. And it's not as though they are uninformed or ill-informed, which he reminds them that that's not the case. The problem does not reside in information or God's publication of the truth. That's not the fundamental problem as to why people don't love each other. The fundamental problem is the human heart. That's what he addresses in verses 11 and 12. The human heart, which is stubborn, stony, hard, and refuses to listen to the Word of God. And therefore, when God punishes, He punishes in truth and justice. They receive a righteous judgment from God. All right, now let's review it from verse 1. In verse 1, it came about in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now, this oracle is dated to the 7th of December, 518 B.C. 7th of December, 518 B.C. 518 B.C. would be midpoint between 520 and 516, in that it was at 520 B.C. that both Haggai and Zechariah started to preach to the people and exhort them and rebuke them for not rebuilding the temple. They began to do so in 520 B.C., and this is midpoint. They completed it in 516 B.C., which would be the sixth year of King Darius. And this is recorded in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 6, especially verses 13 to 15, which records the fact that it was the sixth year of Darius when they completed the temple. So midpoint, as they see the success, they see that things are going better than they were before. These returnees from exile are now inquiring whether it's necessary to be so arduous in their religion. They had to be that, or they were compelled to be that, at least in their own mind, because they had afflictions. They were slaves of the Babylonians, and now they are still slaves of the Persians, but the Persians have given them uh, some extent of freedom to return to their homeland, build their wall, build their temple. The Persians permitted that of the Jews and other uh, nations. So in that way, things are looking better for the Jews. And so with a ray of hope, they think they don't have to be so serious with their religion. That's the mentality with which they are approaching the prophet. But the prophet Zechariah has a word from the Lord. He has a word from the Lord. And this word from the Lord is going to be consistent with all previous words and all uh, future words, which is important. When we see what Zechariah says here, he is in conformity to Moses and all prophets between Moses and Zechariah, 
and the prophets after Zechariah and the apostles after Zechariah. He is consistent, this word. So it shows the unity and harmony of God's message. One gospel, one, one view of man, one way of salvation, the need to listen to the word of the Lord. All right, and then also in verse 2, verse 2, the town of Bethel had sent Sharezer and Regemelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord. The town of Bethel is mentioned here probably because they had enough people and reliable people who had come to Judah and Israel. In Ezra 2.28, it mentions that there were 223 returnees there. 223 returnees to Bethel. And Bethel is not too far from Jerusalem, though it's in another tribe. Technically, it's in another tribe. But practically, it's not too far from Jerusalem. So it would be natural for a significant town, Bethel, with enough men to represent them to ask this question. It doesn't tell us in Scripture, both here or elsewhere, in verse 2, it doesn't tell us who these two men were, but presumably they were leaders among the people of the town. And they came with their men, um, a train of men, a company of men, to seek the favor of the Lord, to seek the favor of the Lord. Now, this is an expression desiring to know the word of God so that they might respond appropriately. Now, that would be the best way to look at that phrase, to seek the favor of the Lord. What does the Lord say? And how shall I act based on what I hear? That would be a good way to look at it. However, not everyone, when they go to the priest or the prophet or the pastor, not everyone who approaches is actually seeking the favor of the Lord in a genuine way. Sometimes the people have ill intentions. Sometimes they are looking for the minister to say a word favorable to the inquirer so that the inquirer can continue living in sin. And in this case, we find that they do ask a wrong question, a question that they should not have asked because of this fasting that they were conducting over the years, for 70 years. So they're seeking the favor of the Lord, that is, going to the, the prophet in order, prophet and priest, in order to know the will of God. And it's not as though the prophets never exhorted the people to do so. They did do so. In Zechariah 8.21, we have a positive example of this. Zechariah 8, we'll start at 8.20 to 21. Zechariah 8.20 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of one 
will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. They're going to seek the favor of the Lord and calling on each other to do so. That's a positive example of doing so. A negative example of doing so is in Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel 14. Six to eleven. Ezekiel fourteen six to eleven. In this case they go to the wrong prophet, to a false prophet. Ezekiel fourteen six. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself, I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. And I shall set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I shall cut him off. From among my people, so you will know that I am the Lord. But if the prophet is prevailed upon to speak a word, it is I, the Lord, who have prevailed upon that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people, Israel. And they will bear the punishment of their iniquity, as the iniquity of the inquirer is, so the iniquity of the prophet will be, in order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me and no longer defile themselves with all their transgressions. Thus they will be my people, and I shall be their God, declares the Lord God. These inquirers are coming in sin, not repentantly, but with unrepentant sin to inquire. And if the prophet gives them an oracle, which false prophets give unrepentant people, favorable oracles, favorable words. And when that happens, if that happens, God will destroy both the false prophet and the inquirer. Give them what they deserve for their unrepentance. Then Zechariah 7.3, we notice that they come to speak to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts. And to the prophets, they go to the house of the Lord, the temple of God, which means they have to go to Jerusalem where it was being constructed or reconstructed. And they come to the priests who are in service. Though the nation had priests who lived in various towns and cities, there was a rotation and some of them would be serving at the time that these inquirers go to the house of the Lord, to the temple. The number of priests there would have been few compared to the vast number of them scattered throughout the land. That was the scenario that Moses installed and Joshua implemented, or Moses proclaimed and Joshua implemented. And from that point onward, there would be a rotation. So they go to the priests 
in the central place, in the house of the Lord, because it's natural to go to the main place of worship with their question to the priests who are in service and to the prophets. The prophets are not named here, but probably we should say these prophets are at least Haggai and Zechariah, perhaps even Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, because Malachi is in this period as well, and perhaps even more than that, that are unnamed. They go to the priests and to the prophets, which is not a bad thing to do. It's not a wrong thing to do to consult of the ministers of God. Now, they should have, first and foremost, gone to the Word of God, and then their question would have been answered. They could have easily read the book of Deuteronomy, which, though it mentions rituals, it so stresses the need to follow the commandments of God with a true heart, a right heart, for God's blessings, that that would have answered their questions. The book of Deuteronomy itself would have. And besides that, they could have easily consulted Isaiah chapter 1, Amos chapter 5, Hosea chapter 6. These prophets are their predecessors, predecessors to Zechariah and these men inquiring of Zechariah and the priests. They could have easily consulted those chapters where those prophets make it absolutely clear that their question was unnecessary to ask. Unnecessary completely. They could have even gone to 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 23. 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 23, where the prophet rebuking King Saul said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. In the good sense, we find an example in the book of Malachi, going to inquire of these ministers. Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. We'll read actually 5 to 7. Malachi 2, 5 to 7. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of fear. So he feared me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and... Men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The ideal priest is described here in verses 5 to 7. The ideal priest who should be consulted. Why? Because he's got the truth in his mouth 
And the truth is the way in which he conducts his life. He's living his life in truth. Both his words and his works match, and therefore he is a reliable source. And in verse 7, men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That is the right way to go when there is a question to go to the minister. They were instructed to do so. But there can be those who falsely, falsely consult. We've already seen that in Ezekiel 14, 6 to 11. We could also say the same in the book of First Kings. In the book of First Kings, we do have in First Kings 22 another negative example of one who did inquire, but he stopped inquiring because the true prophet kept insisting that he repent of sin or else face the judgment of God. In 1 Kings 22, the two kings of Israel and Judah are about to go to war. Ahab of Israel, Jehoshaphat of Judah. But before they go to war, they consult the prophets. Ahab consulted false prophets. Jehoshaphat notices that there isn't a prophet of the Lord in the group. So he asks Ahab, don't you over here in your area, in your kingdom, in the north, have a prophet of the Lord, a true prophet? Why can't we inquire of him? That's verse 7. Let's read 7 and 8. 1 Kings 22, 7. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. They do consult him, but Ahab does not listen to the words of the prophet. Jehoshaphat in this instance also does not listen to the words of the true prophet. And what's the problem? The true prophet was consistently preaching the truth and living it, and Ahab came to hate him because the true prophet kept telling him to repent, or else the evil will come from the Lord, because you won't repent. So Ahab quits inquiring of Micaiah, and is only forced to to save face in front of Jehoshaphat. That's why he does He doesn't do it because he really intended to do it in truth and sincerity. Zechariah, Zechariah 7, 3. They ask the question. They ask the question. Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as as I have done these many years? Shall I weep first It's a singular, likely because it's a composite or corporate singular, collective singular, since all of them are coming, representing the town of Bethel. And so Bethel as a unit is coming to inquire. Shall I weep in the fifth month and 
abstain. Weeping because of an incident that occurred in the fifth month. And abstain. Abstain from what? Abstain from food. As we see from the prophet's answer in verses 5 and 6. Shall I weep and fast? That's their question. Shall I weep and fast in the fifth month, um, which would be uh, equivalent to our month of July? And what happened at that point in the fifth month, the month of July? That month is also mentioned in verse 5. We'll see when we come to verse 5, the fifth and the seventh month. Something happened, something terrible happened, and that's why they are commemorating it by weeping and fasting. As I have done these many years. They did it for many years. How long? In verse 5 it says 70 years. For 70 years annually they wept and fasted in the fifth month. Since their circumstances are changing, they're wondering, do I need to be so solemn in my religion now? Do I need to be so arduous? Should I I put a toilsome, burdensome load on my shoulders, which no one wants to weep and fast, right? Who enjoys weeping and fasting? We don't normally, because it bothers our body. It bothers our mind, right? It's hard to sleep on an empty stomach. So why weep and fast? Well, they have a word. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? Which is a rebuke. This question is a rebuke, not only to the men of Bethel, but this oracle is for the whole nation, all the people of the land, the common people, and to the priests who teach the common people. And the true prophet is exhorting the priests and the people with this question and rebuke. Zechariah. When you fasted and mourned, the mourning is equivalent to the weeping of verse 3, and the fasting is equivalent to the abstinence in verse 3. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years. Well, that gives us a clue. Why would they do so for 70 years? These 70 years can be dated from 586 B.C. to 516 B.C. And he is summarizing that period, even though it's in 518, by naming it 70 years. And why 70 years? Because that was the period in which the temple was destroyed. And presumably they anticipate finishing the building of the temple in two more years, which happened in 516. So they fasted and wept in the fifth and seventh months. Well, what happened in those months in the history of the people? First, we'll go to 2 Kings 
25. 2 Kings 25 and verse 8. 25, 8. Now, on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, verse 9. And he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. Verse 10, So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And then he takes into captivity the people except the poorest of the land. Verses 11 and 12 say. Well, what happened, therefore, in the fifth month? The house of the Lord, the temple was destroyed. The king's house or palace was destroyed. All the houses of Jerusalem, typically big houses, at least the majority would be big houses of wealthy people. They were all destroyed and burned with fire. Every great house was. And the army destroyed the walls of Jerusalem. So their fasting and mourning had to do with commemoration of these events in this fifth month. Well, what happened in the seventh month? In the seventh month, Jeremiah the prophet, in Jeremiah chapter 41, verse 1, tells us of an incident. We'll read Jeremiah 41, 1 to 3. Jeremiah 41, verse 1. Now, it came about in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, and one of the chief officers of the king, along with ten men, came to Mitzvah to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, while they were eating bread together there in Mitzvah. Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, and the ten men who were with him, arose and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword, and put to death the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him, that is, with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldeans who were found there, the men of war. This Ishmael, who is in cahoots with the foreigners, um, foreigners who don't want the Babylonians there, and who don't want Gedaliah to be the Babylonians' governor of Judah. This one assassinates Gedaliah and the men with him, which was a disastrous thing because there would be retaliation and confusion. And Gedaliah, since he was appointed by the king of Babylon, would have had the best interests of the people for the 70 years as long as he would have been the governor. So they are mourning in the seventh month because of this assassination. Ishmael assassinates Gedaliah. This Ishmael, of course, is identified as the son of Nathaniah, which means he's not the same as Ishmael, the son of Abraham. Ishmael was not a, an uncommon name. 
in, the, in Israel. These are the two reasons. They are fasting and mourning. However, though people can voluntarily fast, these are not biblical fasts. It's not recorded anywhere that they ought to do this. No prophet or priest instituted a new fast incumbent upon the nation. There was no mandatory fasts as recorded in Scripture for these two incidents. Yet they did it. So if they did do it, it would have been their own doing and not from the Lord. Well, that would be one problem if they were putting hopes in fasting and mourning when it was a tradition of men. This is often what happens, what people do when they establish the traditions of men. They establish hope in that. They put their hope in that and disregard what else God has to say in reference to their obedience, their daily life. Um, The traditions of men were condemned by the prophets and also by the apostles. The first is the first example of this is Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29, 13 and 14. Isaiah 29, 13 and 14. Then the Lord said, because this people draw me, draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their fear of me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be concealed. They drew near to God with their lip service, but not with their hearts. They learned traditions of men called their wise men in verse 14. Their wise men. And God says he's going to destroy it all. It's going to perish. It's no good. God wants nothing to do with it. Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 8, Jeremiah 8, 8 to 10, Jeremiah 8, 8 to 10. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, and what kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore I will give their wives to others, their fields to new owners, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone practices deceit. And Mark 7, Mark 7, 1 to 23 Mark 7, 1 to 23, and this has a parallel in Matthew 15, 1 to 20. Matthew 15, 1 to 20. This is 
the familiar confrontation, the Pharisees and the scribes, um, mentioned scribes in Mark 7, 1, the text does, the Pharisees and some of their scribes, and that's like Jeremiah 8, 8, traditions of men. Well, they came asking Christ about why their disciples, the disciples of Christ, don't wash their hands ritually before they partake of food. And Christ confronts it. He confronts it by quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 13, and 14. We pick it up at 7, 6, and 7. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So this show of religion is confronted because it's man-made. Anything apart from Scripture, sincerely practiced, is condemned by God because it's man-made. That's why he says, was it actually for me? Was it actually for me that they fasted? And even in verse 6, and when you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves? And do you not drink for yourselves? When they did eat and drink, they weren't, they weren't thankful to God. They weren't blessing God. They were thinking of themselves. They were indulging for themselves. It wasn't for the Lord. Their fasting was not for the Lord, and their feasting was not for the Lord. Both fasting and feasting should be for the Lord first and foremost, and also for one to reject sin and wickedness and for one to be mindful of others, to reject one's own wickedness and to be mindful of others, fasting. And even in feasting, we have to practice self-control so that there's no gluttony and drunkenness and self-control so that in our feast we share our food with others so that somebody does not become a glutton while his brother at the feast does not have enough to eat. There must be balance in both fasting and feasting, the right perspective on both. Isaiah 58, the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 58, he actually does confront this sin. Isaiah 58, 1 to 12. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. They say, Why have we fasted and you not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you not take notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, now God's answer, Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. 
You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I chose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will speedily spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness, and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will be raised up. You will raise up the age old foundations and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. The Lord, the Lord Jesus did not abolish fasting. He did not abolish fasting. He just rebukes the people like Zechariah does because they don't do it for the right reasons. They don't do it in the right way. Matthew 6. Matthew six sixteen to 18. Matthew six sixteen to 18. And whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will repay you. In verse 16, and whenever you fast. He didn't say, now I abolish all fasting. He says, whenever you fast, which assumes that people will fast. When they do fast, he says, don't be a hypocrite. Don't make it a show. If you make it a show, there's no reward for you. But if you don't make it a show and you do it sincerely, then your father who sees in secret will repay you. In the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 2, the church, before they commissioned missionaries there, in verses 2 and 3, they were praying and fasting. Praying and fasting. 13.2 of the book of Acts, 2-3. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. In the Old Testament, 
The only compulsory fast was on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16.29. Leviticus 16.29, where though it doesn't mention the word fasting, it was the practice of the Jews and it was identified in the word humble your souls, to humble one's soul. Isn't that what Isaiah said in Isaiah 58? He also called on them to humble themselves in the context of their fast in Isaiah 58. As well, in the case of Zechariah in verses 11 and 12, he essentially is calling on them to practice humility instead of refusing to pay attention, instead of being stubborn, instead of stopping up their ears, instead of having hearts like flint, he wants them to be humble. So humility is a synonym for fasting in the Old Testament. As well, it's mentioned as the fast in the book of Acts 27, verse 9. 27, 9 says, And when considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. And the fast is making a reference to the Day of Atonement, which was in October. The Day of Atonement. Again, to humble one's soul and Day of Atonement, that was the only mandatory fast throughout the year. All the other fasts of the Jews, if they had them, were voluntary. Voluntary. So if an individual or a group wanted to do so, they could do so, but they couldn't do so as a mandatory thing for all the people. Then it became a tradition of men. But voluntarily, yes. And the same with us. Voluntarily, yes. If one wants to fast, like Christ said in Matthew 6, 16 to 19, or as they did in the book of Acts 13, 2 to 3, there are different reasons, biblical reasons to fast. To inquire of the Lord, to pray, to reject sin and wickedness in our life, to humble ourselves in light of what others don't have, to humble ourselves and be mindful of the needs of others. These are some reasons for fasting. Further, fasting and feasting both should be for the Lord, not for ourselves for the Lord and not for ourselves. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10. Says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. That shows that we ought to be mindful of the goodness of the Lord and be thankful to Him when we have eaten. In 1 Samuel 9, 13, before they ate, Samuel is said to bless the sacrifice. 1 Samuel 9, 13, 
As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore, go up, for you will find him at once. And we also know that Christ and his apostles would also thank the Lord or bless the Lord before they partook of food, such as in both Matthew 14 and 15 in the feeding of 5,000 and the 4,000. We also have it in the book of Acts 27, 35. 27, 35. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. Acts 27, 35. So it should be for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So then, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, let us do to the glory of God. Was any of this strange? Should it have been strange to them? No. Verse 7. Zechariah 7, 7. Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with its cities around it, and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? The territory of Jerusalem is typically divided into three that is, the mountains or the hills, the Negev, which would be the south country or the desert land, the wilderness, and also the foothills, the foothills or the plains. These are the three main terrains of Israel. And he's saying that when there were lots and lots of people, numerous people dwelling in all of these areas. Didn't you know all this? Didn't you think about all this? Now you see how few the people are. You see the paucity of people now, but didn't you see the prosperity of the people then? And when you had that prosperity, didn't the prophets at that time warn you that all of this can disappear? God can cause it all to dissipate just like that? Just like smoke disappears? Mist disappears quickly? Don't you realize that? Didn't the former prophets preach all this? Yes, they did. They preached it. When he says former prophets, this phrase is found in 7.7 and 7.12. Former prophets, 7.7 and 7.12. Zechariah is one of the last prophets of the Old Testament, last books of the Old Testament. When he says former prophets, his time period was about 500 B.C. This means that all the prophets from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapters 3 and 4, to prophets who did not compose in our canon, and prophets who did compose in our canon. The canonical prophets are those from Moses to Malachi. And most of them had already composed their books 
and they were canonized by the time of Zechariah, since Zechariah is one of the last ones. So didn't all of these former prophets who composed works and are canonized, they are written prophets, didn't they say so? Yes. And then didn't the uncanonized prophets, starting with Adam, Abel, Enoch, Noah, didn't they also prophesy that we cannot trust in our prosperity, in the times of our prosperity, we must be godly and live a righteous life? Didn't they also prophesy these things? Yes, they did. Both those prophets in the book of Genesis and those prophets later in the Old Testament, they all preach the same message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They all pre preach this. They all preach the gospel. First, the fact that they did preach. Let's look at Jeremiah 7, 25. Jeremiah 7, 25. Jeremiah precedes Zechariah by a few decades, and he says similar words. 7.25 Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, until this day I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. 26 Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, they did evil more than their fathers. Generation after generation became more and more evil. But God did say here in verse 25, from the time of Egypt as a nation, he's speaking of their nation, as a nation under Moses and then Joshua, God gave them prophets, daily rising early and sending them. That's a figure of speech meaning that God was toilsome in sending prophets. God was laborious in sending prophets. He arose early in the morning with diligence to make sure that the people, when they arose early in the morning, had a word from God. That's how diligent God was, industrious God was, toilsome God was, in making sure the people had prophets. So they weren't ignorant they didn't lack knowledge. They had what they needed to know because God's prophets were sent to them. At least here we begin with Moses. Also, let's turn to Hosea. Hosea chapter 6. Hosea 6 verse 5. Hosea 6 5. Shall we actually start at verse 4? And we'll read 4 to 6. Uh, Hosea 6, 4 to 6. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud, and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What else was there that God could do for Ephraim or Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom? 
he rebukes them for their loyalty because they are like a fleeting morning cloud and the fleeting dew. They have obedience or faith only temporarily. And because of their temporary faith, temporary obedience, God hewn them, he chopped them up, cut them up in pieces by the prophets. Why? Because of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. The Word of God is alive and active, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4, 12. And in the same way, the prophets cut down, chopped down, sliced and diced the pieces, uh, into pieces, the people because of their sins. And what did they fail to recognize? Verse 6, God wants loyalty or covenant love, enduring love. He wants this covenant love or loyalty. He doesn't want the blood of the animals. He expects the blood of the animals only if they understand its true purpose. But they didn't understand. They didn't obey its true purpose. Therefore, God had no use for their sacrifices. The prophets clearly preached it. Also, Hosea 12. Hosea chapter 12. And... We'll read at verses 3 to 5. Hosea 12, 3 to 5. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel. And there he spoke with us. He spoke with us. Who's the us? all the descendants of the patriarch Jacob. God spoke with us through Jacob. Who is it? Verse 5. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. The Lord spoke through Jacob. So Jacob was a prophet because God spoke to him. And then Jacob and the oracles of God were conveyed to the rest of the people. And we also note that there was a man, according to Genesis 32, 22 to 32, it says there was a man who came and wrestled with Jacob. Mm-hmm. That man, because he came in human form, is called an angel in verse 4. And then he's called the Lord and the God of hosts in verse 5. Even the name Yahweh or Jehovah in verse 5 is given to this angel of verse 4 who wrestled with Jacob. And Jacob knew that because he was amazed he didn't die because he says, have I seen him and remained alive? He said in Genesis 32. And so Jacob was a prophet who received words from God and communicated those words. By the way, we can go back all the way to Adam, Abel, Enoch, and Noah as prophets. Um, in, let, let's say, for the sake of brevity, Abel is 
identified as a prophet in Luke eleven forty nine to 51 because Christ said the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world and then he mentions Abel as the first prophet who was executed by a wicked man, his own brother, Cain. And Enoch was a prophet, according to Jude 14, because he prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. It says there, he prophesied. And that Enoch is the Enoch of the book of Genesis, Genesis 5, 21 to 24. Noah was a prophet in that he had 120 years in which to build the ark, and he preached that a flood would come because God told him a flood would come. And he was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5. In these ways, they had numerous prophets. Whether those oracles are written in the Bible or there's a book of the Bible after their name or not, they were true prophets. And so all of them said, all of them said, Yes, you have prosperity now, but you better repent or your prosperity will disappear. You're going to go from being prosperous to being paupers in poverty. That's what you will have. That's what happened to all the people in the days of Noah. Everyone who was eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, Jesus said. Didn't he? Until the flood came and swept them all away. They had prosperity and then they perished instantly. So, the prophets warn of imminent judgment, both in this life and in the life to come. Because once death overtakes us in this life, then we go into the life to come. And then we'll go to hell. Jude 7 tells us that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah not merely physically, but their souls perished eternally. Jude 7. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The punishment of eternal fire. Sodom was destroyed instantly on the earth, but also eternally, because they did not repent. We'll pause there for now. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.